We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, continuing on in the sermon series, Stand Firm, His Grace is Enough. Pastor Ron will be speaking to us this morning. We're going to begin in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. This this, uh, particular several weeks, we have attempted to do something that we had never done in the 30-some years of my ministry, and that is to take a passage of Scripture. We've certainly preached through books of Scripture and like that particular method the best, to just take a book and, and preach through it. But never have we had all of the staff do it together. And so in this particular series, we have, we have just taken the text, laid them out, and, uh, when a particular week that I had to be gone, one of the staff stepped in and took that particular text, preached that text, and then we just continued on in the series. Now, some of you have been looking ahead to next week. And uh, the temptation for me, because I'm here this week and next week, was to take vacation a week early and let Pastor Jason have that text next week. But I didn't. I'll be here. And if you looked ahead to that text, it says, Husbands, honor your, honor women as the weaker vessel. You can see why there's a temptation to just kind of skip that week and let Pastor Jason have that text. Because half of you are women here today. But we're going to take that text, we're going to preach through it, and uh, I say that to say that it's, it's incredibly encouraging to me that that we can do that and that you let us do that and that you have that high a view of Scripture to do that. Um, We want to be people of the text. We don't want to just have some ideas and try to bring those ideas and put a little Scripture around them. But, But all of the staff is committed to preaching the text, preaching what that particular author meant by what he's saying and making application to the to, to our day to that, certainly to that day, but to our day as best we can. So we're going to continue to do that, continue in this series in standing firm. Now, for just 
a few minutes, let me back up a little bit to kind of bring us to where we're at, and then we're going to move on. It's, the nice thing about series is that you can do that, and you begin to see the, the grand theme of what's being preached in a book. And the last couple of weeks, um, we talked about what it means, actually several weeks, um, what it means to be in Christ, all of, of the, that means and all the benefits that come to believers being in Christ. Um, we talked about the fact that we are at the epicenter as Christians of what God is doing in the world. This is one story. It's one story about how God is saving a people. This entire book. That's why, for me, when you can connect Old Testament text to New Testament text, you see that one story. It's not one story in the Old Testament, another story in the New Testament. It's one story. It's one story about God saving a people. And, and if you are in that camp, if your eyes have been opened to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and you have cast your hope on that cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. Because you're in the center of what God is doing. Now, it may not always seem like that. It may seem like God is slow in fulfilling His promises sometime. And, and you get caught in the mundaneness of life. And you can forget the big picture. And so I think that's part of what Peter's doing. They were, they were getting bogged down a bit in the oppression, oppressive culture that they were in. And so Peter just reminded them. He reminded them things like this. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And, and then he changes gears a bit after that. He begins to, to shift a bit. But not before he says to them, even in that text, you, if, you, if you trust in this Christ, you'll not be disappointed. He who believes in him will never be put to shame. Another text that comes over. And he says all of that, that we're then to proclaim the excellencies. That's the reason for all that. The the goal of all of that is that we might proclaim the excellencies of him to others. um, So that we might. That's why he's reminding them of all of those excellencies. All of those things that are theirs in Christ. And uh, again... It's in the midst of a hostile world. But we're to live in the midst of a hostile world winsomely. We're to, we're to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And last week, we come to last week now, we do it by two ways. One, by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Those passions of the flesh that were described as in chapter 2 and verse 1. We talked about those a bit. They're described there, described a little later. But things like deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Those kind of subtle things that can happen. Remember we talked about small communities and, and how some of that kind of stuff can swirl around. There's some, some other things he talks about a little later in the book that are much more um, blatant and graphic kinds of, of uh, patterns of the flesh. Now sometimes we don't have as much trouble with those blatant kinds of patterns of the flesh. Orgies and dissensions and all that kind of stuff. But how easy it is to fall into some of these First ones he talks about, envy and slander, those kinds of things. He says, flee those things. If you want to proclaim His excellencies, flee that stuff. And then he says also, 
and we closed with this last week, we also can do it not only by not doing some of these things, but by proactively doing other things. The text that we were in last week says, keep your contact among the Gentiles honorable, in verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and something happens. They glorify God on the day of visitation, which very well may mean in the day that God's convicting spirit comes to them, that they glorify God. And to glorify God means that they have come to life in Christ. In other words, they have seen the excellencies of Christ for themselves. They have tasted those excellencies. They, they have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life because of your abstaining and also because of your good deeds. They have, they have witnessed your life and the arguments that they had have fallen away and, and Christ has become real to them. So all of that. Now, what he does now in this text, as we continue the flow of it, I think, as he begins to, to kind of spell out what those good deeds are. In other words, he begins to put some, some tangible pictures of what it means to do good deeds that they might glorify God on the day of his visitation. And he uses three different areas here now. Two of them we'll deal with this week, and then next week it will be that text that I just talked about. But here this morning, he talks about how to do good deeds in, in a, a national kind of sense, living in a nation, living under rulers. How do we live in and under those rulers in a way that displays good deeds? How do we live as citizens of, of them, present-day Turkey, where they were at, of that particular time of the Roman Empire. And then he turns to servants and he talks about servants and masters. So in both of those places he says this is, this is what good deeds look like. I think that's really what he's saying there in that text. And let me make a few comments about that as we tangibly look at that. The first thing that you have to see in this you, you, you have to see this and it is hard to see it in our culture today. What I'm going to talk to you about now, when you read that text, you read it in a culture that it's hard to really grasp what he is saying, how radical the nature of what Peter is writing is. I've said this before. I think it's true. It's not from me originally. But when generations look back on our generation, particularly our Western generation, this time in history, if time goes on long enough to look back. They are going to say, and I think they are going to describe us as the temperature-taking generation. And by that, what that individual means is we're just always taking our temperature. We're always deciding how we feel. How do we feel? It always runs through our feelings. How do we feel? And I say to you, because you have grown up in that generation, you have been influenced by that generation. You've been influenced by this feelings kind of generational stuff that's all around. It's in the air you breathe. You cannot escape it. It helps to recognize it, but you won't fully escape it. And if if you read this text through that lens, it skews it. These words are incredibly radical that he is saying. Now let me, let me tell you why. 
Let me give you a little history lesson. Many of you know this, but this history lesson is incredibly important. It was the year 37 AD. There was born in Italy a boy, and his name was Lucius uh, Domitius Arbarbus. And that particular boy's mother's name was Agrippina the Younger. And Agrippina the Younger married the Roman Emperor Claudius. And she was a conniver. And she connived a way in which her little boy, who later had his name changed to Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus, she connived a way that through adoption and name change, he would one day be emperor of the Roman Empire. She connived and plotted in a way that Claudius' own biological son, Britannicus, was left out of the equation. So it was in 54 A.D. that Nero was 17 years old and he assumed rulership of the Roman Empire. Now, the first half of that went fairly well, not because of Nero, but because of the advisors Nero had around him. He had two men that surrounded him, um, the Council of Burrus, the head of the Praetorian Guard, and he had another named Seneca, the famous Stoic philosopher. They gave him good advice. They were able to control him for the first half of his reign. But after that, the selfishness and the calculating personality of a man incapable of ruling well on his own began to come to the surface. And as it came to the surface, he became more and more paranoid of anybody who threatened his power. And so what began to happen is people like his stepbrother Britannicus were killed. In 59 AD, he had his mother, the conniver herself, who put him in power, executed. 62, his first wife was executed, and then, just after that, Seneca, his former counselor who had protected him in that first half of the reign, was forced to commit suicide. The Apostle Peter probably was in Rome a year after that happened. A year after that, Peter's in Rome. He's writing this letter to the people of Asia Minor. In fact, he uses a term in in this particular um, writing to them in verse 13 of chapter 5. We'll come to that a little later. But it says, She who is at Babylon, which is a code word, it became a code word for, for Christians in the Roman Empire for the godlessness of that empire because it referenced the expulsion of the Jews and the scattering of the Jews into Babylon. And so, Rome was known as Babylon because of its godlessness and people and rulers like Nero. So he uses that very terminology in in Romans. It was in the night of July 19th uh, of 64 AD when the fire, the great fire broke out in Rome. You probably have heard of that. But uh, it broke out and it burned, I think it was, for seven days. And then they put it out. But then it mysteriously began again in the northern part of the city and it burned for three more days. Well, there were people who knew this Nero and they knew of his paranoia and so he began to get the blame for it 
rightly get the blame for it. The blame, he did it so that he could rebuild the city. Um, But because he got the blame, he had to shift it. And where he shifted it to were those who were not well thought of anyway, and that was the Christians. And so some horrendous kinds of things began to happen to the Christians. Many of them were crucified by Nero. Some of them were sewn into the, to the skins of wild animals and into the arena, were eaten alive. Others were torched alive and, and lifted up in the streets of Rome to be burning torches. Just horrendous. Never, never before since, since the beginning, 30 years earlier, had there been such persecution. That's the kind of climate. That's the climate to which Peter writes these words that we have just heard read to us. That's the context of them. That's the context in which he says to these people, submit yourselves in verse 1, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be on, uh, to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God. Now, you see why it's hard for us to grasp that? It's hard for us to understand the weight of that. It helps a little to understand the circumstance in which it was written. Certainly not to to anything close to a Christian nation. That kind of inference. Peter wasn't naive when he wrote it. He, In fact, Nero had not been the first ruler that he had watched do some of the things that happened. He knew about Pilate and he knew about Herod around the days of Christ. And he writes, be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And he doesn't even give a hint. Not one hint of civil disobedience. That there is a place for civil disobedience. He just says, For the Lord's sake. He talks about words and he infers words of submission. Submission to this godless culture, to these godless leaders. And there's a reason. Verse 15 gives us the reason. This is Peter's reason. He says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, the winsomeness idea. The idea that, that you will exalt Christ. That Christ will be magnified in that. In the midst of that difficulty. Now, to understand that again, it, it's almost impossible. But, but I hope you can see that what he is saying and what he is admonishing is that we would, that, that we would act absolutely contrary to the heart of fallen man. Fallen man does not do what Peter asked these believers to do. He, he does not. There's something that rises up even in you who don't have the heart of a fallen man in the sense that it's been redeemed. Certainly there's vestiges of it and that's why even for you who've come to Christ, who know what it is to be a believer... And to not be all fallen man anymore. There's something inside of you that even as we move through this passage, as he starts to talk about servants, 
There's something in us that wants to recoil and back up from this and say, oh, but there are other passages that temper this. There are other places in Scripture that that gives a balance here. Be careful. If that's all you read, they're going to get the wrong idea. I don't think Peter had much concern about getting the wrong idea. I don't think Peter said, well, Paul will temper it later. Because there was no Paul to temper it to these people. This was the Scripture they knew. This is Peter's words. He didn't temper it. We're always looking for temperance. We're always looking for a way to balance it. Peter doesn't do that. In fact, his words get stronger. As he moves through this text, he starts out by saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But then he moves into this passage on servants. My goodness, he just, he just keeps amplifying this idea of submission. This idea for the sake of silencing godless, foolish people. For the sake, really, going back farther, I think he's thinking in his mind that, that on the day of visitation that these people might glorify God. They might truly see something of reality in your lives. They might see the miracle that has to happen. It has to happen to fallen man to do what Peter was calling them to do. False converts, pseudo-Christians, won't cut it. At this point, they draw the line. They may look good for a while till you get to this kind of stuff. You start wading into this kind of admonition and, and uh, you just see the backside of them as they walk away. You see, that's the, that's the tone here. That's the tone of Peter. There's a radical nature about his admonition to these people. Um, and, and I just think we need to hear it today. We need to hear it in our culture. There's, there's passages as I was preparing this week and other places in the Scripture that say, why not rather be wronged than to take your brother to court? That's, that's the context of that. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged for the sake of something higher and greater? One of the things this morning that I appreciate, and I, and I didn't get permission to do this, and I'm putting him on the spot a little bit, but I, Greg, I appreciate your spirit. Greg's, Greg's a lawyer. Greg makes his living by helping defend people and all of that. But, but I've had experiences to sit in Greg's office and for Greg to stop and, and talk about other ways and talk about these kinds of things. Deal with these kinds of strong statements. Is there a better way? Is there another way? Is there... Do you understand what I'm saying? We so quickly, we live in this rights-oriented society. Do an experiment. I'm not on Facebook. My wife is on Facebook. Other people are on Facebook. My kids, so periodically, sometimes I will look at Facebook. I'll look at my wife's or I'll look at other people's Facebook, my children's Facebook. You just do an experiment if you're on Facebook. You just calculate the number of times that a post gets posted because somehow somebody's rights got violated and they're sounding off on Facebook. I've done it. I've sounded off. Maybe not on Facebook, other places. But how quickly we are to get our toes stepped on and respond. Peter's saying, 
Not only let them step on them, let them smash them. Let them smash them. We just live in a culture that's hard. It's hard sometimes to to hear these things and to put them into a category for us. Um, I, I, it's all around us. It's in the air we breathe. And 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 because for an illustrative purpose, I I use this illustration. It, it, we live in a kind of Rush Limbaugh culture. Um, you know who Rush Limbaugh is. Some of you listen to Rush Limbaugh. I I, I would be careful. Be careful. There, there is a place for indignation. There is a place for that. But it is always, I think, a sorrow-tempered indignation. There's a sorrow-tempered indignation that we as believers ought to exude, exude out of us. It's tempered. It's sorrowful. This is a broken world. Yes, that was wrong. That was injustice. But, but there's a sorrow about it. The sorrow in it as it's expressed in our culture. Be careful. Um, he goes on here. Let, let, me, let me go on because I'll run out of time. He goes on to say, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, he doesn't make direct reference to the... To the uh, human institutions as being unjust, but as you read, you get the feeling he, he, that was just in, that was just assumed. People just assumed the Roman culture. They knew that, that godless culture was unjust. He didn't have to put it in there. But then he goes on to talk about servants being subject to masters, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he says, For this and to this you have been what? You have been called. You have been called. He's speaking now to these Christians in Asia Minor. You have been called to endure unjust suffering. He, he, he doesn't say, go hire a lawyer, defend yourself. He just says, you've been called to it. Endure it. Endure it, again, for the sake of a greater good. A greater good. Now, now, somebody's going to say, ooh, be careful, be careful. I understand that. That, what I just said, somebody can take and it, 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 there's potential of damage. I understand. Do, do you just stand there and get hit in the face until you're dead kind of thing. I, I understand there's danger in those kind of statements. But this is, this is the difference, I think, of what happens in the flow of this text. He's not saying be committed to a principle of unjust suffering. What he does in this text is it flows. He, he doesn't say be committed to a principle. He says follow an example. There's a difference. One of the things in the church world is I'm a pastor for 35 years. People are always looking for some principle. So they get this principle and they, they got to live by this principle no matter what. I mean, it's a biblical principle. I don't think the biblical principle is, you know, unjust suffering, period. 
And you, there's never any other avenue in it. It's never right to go see a lawyer. I don't think that's what it's saying. What he's saying is, and what he's saying is, look to our example. Look to Christ. Follow Him. Let Him be your guide. Not a principle that's rigid and, and not, can't be fluid at all, but a person. Look to Christ. And look what He does. Look what He says. He just gives them an example. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. These are the texts right out of Isaiah 53. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. One of the songs we just sang, I, I can't pull it out, but it talked about that, that He... He, he, he entrusted Himself to the Father for us. He, it goes on to say, He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree. Here's Peter writing, he, he, he died on a cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Look to Christ. Look to the means by which God chose to save the world. His Son. The brokenness of His Son. A Son who fully submitted to unjust suffering for us. That you might be saved. That you might see. And and Paul is saying that others might see. Unjust suffering. There... There's a powerful thing in suffering. Um, let, let me close with this illustration this morning and, and then we're going to go. Let me set it up a bit and then Matthew's going to come and we're going to move into that song that we've been singing. But in my Sunday school class, we, we have been talking about marriage. And one of the things that it talks about in that class, one of the things that's been really helpful to us, in, or to me, I should say, I think to others, but to me, is that in marriage, um, you, you, your, your spouse at times can either be a vehicle or an obstacle. Because at times, even as Christians, we, we start to make life about our kingdom. And so if, if your life is about your kingdom and your comfort and your ease, which is part of how we're prone, even as Christians sometimes, to wander back into, it's about my kingdom, to the degree to which that person is a vehicle for you to get your kingdom stoked, you like them. You'll love them. You'll do lots of good things for them because they're making your world work the way you want your world to work. But when frustration starts to rise up within you, you're agitated, you're angry, you're maybe, maybe not visibly, but inside you're churning. If, if you have that temperament, if you have a volatile temperament, it may be on the outside. But just because it's not on the outside doesn't mean it's not on the inside. But something starts to churn in you because they become an obstacle. They do something that blocks you getting to what you want, your kingdom. You, you, you've got some stuff that is pretty important in your life and they just stepped on it and you're upset. And that's powerful. 
They're, they're a vehicle. You love them. They're an obstacle. You begin to despise them. You get angry. You get agitated. And, and there's a, a cycle that happens. Now, how do you get out of that cycle? How do you stop that cycle? The way you stop that cycle is, is the kingdom issue. And this is the point I want to make, which I think carries over into this text, this whole idea that, that these particular believers are being pricked and poked. They're in an ungodly pagan society that doesn't like them very much. And it, it hurts. It's not very much fun. And so, so as you carry it over to that illustration now, um, what, what Peter is admonishing them, what he's trying to help them to see is make it about God's kingdom. And, and the, the remedy in marriage for you to, to, to not operate them being a vehicle, you like them an obstacle, you, is, is to change what your goal is. Christ's kingdom, not your kingdom. To the degree which you make it Christ's kingdom, those issues change. You don't have that frustration like you would because it's about his kingdom, not about your kingdom. But now transfer that over. This is, this is the point I hope I can make. I hope it will make sense to you. It's different. It's different when, um, when it's this kind of thing where persecution is coming. We're Christians. Um, society can, can be a vehicle to help us. There are people that can come alongside us and help us to magnify Christ. A vehicle to magnify Christ. Our goal is to have Christ magnified. His kingdom Paramount. So, so they become a vehicle to help us when they join us, and that's wonderful. We're glad they're joining us. It's about His kingdom. We've got our priorities right. But sometimes they're an obstacle. That's what was happening here. That's what was happening in the text. These particular people were obstacles. They were, they were unjust servants. They were, they were Nero's who, who were putting pressure. They were obstacles. So what do Christians do? their obstacles? Do they get upset? Do they fight back? Do they take out petitions? Do they do all kinds of stuff? You know, do they do that kind of stuff? Get caustic and all that? Try to... No. No. They don't have to. In fact, there's a text, and I don't have time to go into this this morning, but it it says here um, in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for free people. The Christian is the most free of all. Because the Christian has the kingdom of God in respect. So when somebody's a vehicle and comes alongside you to magnify Christ, great. When somebody becomes an obstacle to you and begins to oppose you and begins to come against you and begins to malign you because you name the name of Christ, what this text says is that may be the very thing. In fact, he says it will be the very thing that will help them glorify on the day of visitation. In other words, the very opposition amplifies your ability to magnify Christ. That's really what the text is saying. He says, bear up under it because that very unjust suffering is causing people to see a miracle in your life when you get your buttons pushed and you don't respond like everybody else they know who gets their buttons pushed. Because you don't have to. God can defend Himself. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And He's chosen the very opposition to be the means by which His name gets magnified to even greater degrees. That the reality of God 
burns brighter than even when they join you in it. That's really what the text is saying. There is a sense, there's a sense in which God's means, God's means for the world being one to Christ is the suffering of His people, the suffering of His Son, and the followers of His Son. I don't have time to, to, to say it. I've said it before. But Colossians says that, that we make up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. The church. In other words, Christ has gone to heaven. People don't see His afflictions anymore visibly now. But they see those afflictions in His people. And so we make up what is lacking. The lacking part is He's gone. We're here. And we begin to portray them to the world. I don't know. I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know what God is saying to you from this text. But, but I would say to you this morning, be careful. Be careful how you live in this pagan society around us. Unbelieving society. Pray that God would help you to do it winsomely. Pray that God would help you to hold your tongue sometimes or your keyboard or whatever it is. And too quickly demand your rights. Too quickly demand that something stop. It may be the means by which they want to see. Because you do it differently. Because of your spirit in it. Because of the way you handle it. They say, I wouldn't have done that. How can they do that? And begin to see Christ. Now, the whole remedy of all of that is we just have to glory in the Son. If we're not glorying in Him, if we're not looking to Him, if we're not continually seeing that glory, we're not going to reflect it to the world. So Matthew's going to lead us. This is the way we close every week. Let's sing together. Let's stand. I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitterness and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge The Lamb who is my righteousness The Lamb who is my righteousness I will glory in my Redeemer My life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, My feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. 
I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumphs on I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. Let's pray together. Father, help us. There is a danger of living in this culture. Danger that so many things get skewed. Danger that we take passages like this and apply them to somebody cutting in line ahead of us. Oh Lord, the radical nature of Peter's words, help them to be felt. Help us to feel them in this culture. That Christ might shine, that that people might see when our buttons get pushed we get opposed, when obstacles are put in our path by those who would not name the name of Christ, that we just respond differently. That there would be a sense of bewilderment about it. Because, Father, it is your grace. It is your grace. It is the reality of your presence. It is your spirit. It is looking to your example. Lord, help us even this week to to see it in our lives. How this culture so distorts us. In Jesus' name.